we're going to get infrastructure. Infrastructure is the easiest of all. We're very well on our way. It is also time to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. We are here today to discuss the urgent need to rebuild and restore America's depleted infrastructure. Today to deliver the world-class infrastructure that our people deserve and, frankly, that our country deserves. We're actually calling it Infrastructure Week in this administration, and today I have the honor to kick off our very first summit focused on infrastructure. Our infrastructure will again be the best in the Since it's Infrastructure Week, I'm wondering if the president... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Is it Infrastructure Week? If you're wondering why Infrastructure Week became an ongoing joke throughout the Trump presidency, that would be why. Constantly singing about it, but it never happening. Now, why was Trump never able to get an infrastructure bill passed? Well, apparently, even for the guy who is so talented and so great at anything and everything, dividing your resources between trying to pass infrastructure and obstructing congressional and FBI investigations into your own presidency proved to be a little bit too much for even him. But unfortunately for him, as I am recording this on Monday, November 15th, today, President Joe Biden is set to sign the American Infrastructure and Jobs Act. Finally, Infrastructure Week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to say that infrastructure week. <laughs> Whatever you think of Biden, that was pretty funny. But the important thing is that all Americans will benefit from this bill, from roads and bridges and updates to the highway system, transportation safety programs to help states and localities reduce crashes and fatalities, transit and rail line improvements, investments into electric vehicles and building charging stations, broadband improvement and internet access along with some provisions for consumer protection against internet companies, airport updates, investments into clean water and dealing with wastewater, as well as modernizing the electric grid. This bill is good for all of us. President Biden was also able to pull off getting the bipartisan stamp on it as well. Now, these days, both parties take a win in calling something bipartisan, even if there's only one vote from the opposition party. But Democrats did really pull it off this time in a water to wine like moment with 13 Republicans signing on in the House and 19 Republicans signing on in the Senate. And so we all can and should be happy about that. Except, of course, not all of us are happy about that, and that dissatisfaction threatens the Republican Party's chances of flipping Congress in next year's midterm elections. But we'll come back to that in just a second. Here's what you need to know going into a very long, dark winter that December is likely to be. If you missed the Instagram updates on how the hard infrastructure bill was passed, you should know that it came at the expense of the soft infrastructure bill with all the social investment programs we talked about in the last episode. It was moderate Democrats who dug in and sunk that bill, refusing to vote on it until the updated Congressional Budget Office numbers, the numbers that will tell us the real cost of the bill, come in. That did come with a pledge to vote on the soft bill on the week of November 15th. That is, of course, this week, as those numbers are currently coming out. But let's be real for a second here. Now, if you listen to the last episode, I blasted the Democratic Party, both progressives and moderates, for not figuring out their divisions because this whole stupid thing threatens whatever chance they have at holding the chambers come midterms. And right now, their odds are not looking good. Most importantly, it threatens other big, important things that just need to get done, again, regardless of your preferred party, and that's just frustrating. 
But it is in this instance that I'm pinning this failure on the moderate Democrats because passing both bills should have been an easy win for the party. And again, strictly speaking from the political side of things, it was simply bad politics, worse optics, and just embarrassing. On top of all of that, it really wasn't a deal. It wasn't a compromise between moderates and progressives. Moderates are holding all the cards here because despite their commitment to vote on the bill, their whole premise relies on the CBO numbers, which means whatever pressures they're facing from donors and their constituents or whomever, that's not likely to change after those numbers come out. Any number is going to be considered too expensive if those donors or constituents thought that to begin with. I could be wrong, but I don't see them just voting for the bill that easily. And now, the soft bill passing in the House this week is just one more thing Democrats will have to contend with going into this next month. It's looking to be like a crazy month, and I've been sleeping in the last few days preparing for what is likely to be a December of very, very little sleep. The Democratic Party is headed into a multi-front war, so here's some of the challenges they face. In addition to attempting to pass the soft bill this week, temporary funding of the government that was passed in October will expire on December 3rd. My birthday is the 4th, so thank you Congress for what is sure to be a happy birthday. The debt ceiling is also expected to hit sometime around the 3rd as well. In addition to that, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that this week the Senate will begin the process of passing the yearly National Defense Authorization Act. This is a routine bill that needs to be passed every year to make military budget decisions. Because of its routine and necessary nature, the NDAA becomes a bargaining chip in whatever issues and priorities the parties are fighting over at the time. And this time around, Schumer is confronting pressure from Democrats to delay the NDAA as they try to focus on passing the soft bill and deal with all the other fronts, like the debt ceiling. Delay would also uh, let the Democrats use the NDAA as a bargaining chip if their efforts come up short on the other fronts. Defense spending is a big ticket item for Republican constituents, and the GOP would be unwise to leave themselves politically vulnerable on it especially as a morning consult poll shows that Republicans are currently enjoying a 14-point-plus margin on how they deal with national security versus Democrats. Now, as far as the debt ceiling goes, I'll have a full episode on everything you need to know about that within the next weeks here. But I will say that if the debt ceiling is not raised and the government defaults on its debt, it will be really, 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 really bad. But McConnell and the GOP are pledging yet again to not cooperate on raising the debt ceiling. Now, Democrats do have options here, but this appears to me, at least, that this was McConnell's strategy the entire time because Democrats could lift the debt ceiling on their own. They have two avenues in particular to do so. One of those is to use reconciliation, the maneuver that can be used to bypass the filibuster. However, the Senate can only use reconciliation twice and Democrats used up one of those times to get the American Rescue Plan Act passed earlier this year. With only one opportunity left to use it, Democrats want to use that to pass Pass the soft bill in the Senate. And as of now, Democrats are firmly saying that they will not use reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling, but rather use it for the soft bill. Which means the debt ceiling now becomes a game of chicken while we dance on the precipice of the fiscal cliff. But Democrats are in a bind here. Now, strategically speaking, here's what is true. This was pretty smart of Mitch McConnell, and as I've said on this show a few times, Democrats are foolish if they don't operate as if McConnell is always two steps ahead of them. He usually is. But however smart of a maneuver it was, it was also extremely risky because of the second avenue Democrats have in their wheelhouse, ending the filibuster. 
This is, of course, another reason why I think we're well on our way towards reforming or ending the filibuster within the next few months, because if Dems have any chance of getting the soft bill, they only have reconciliation or ending the filibuster. And when it comes to this fun game of chicken that the Republican Party is playing with the debt ceiling, ending the filibuster just might be the Democrats' only option. Now, successfully overcoming the challenges Democrats face this week and in the coming weeks will depend on party unity. Historically speaking, they're already at a disadvantage because typically the party in power loses ground in the midterms. If you're banking in and bucking historical trends, then you have to do something historic. And party unity is just the first step. That's day one stuff. I have serious doubts about their ability to unify right now. I had hoped to see the gubernatorial results in Virginia scare the party enough into unity. After moderates tanked passing the soft bill that weekend, that hope is slowly suffocating in some windowless room somewhere right about now. But I will be updating on everything happening on Capitol Hill this week on the show's Instagram at this historic. It is likely to be a quickly changing at a moment's notice kind of week. So be sure to follow at this historic on Instagram and check in with those updates. All of that said, Democrats are not necessarily dead in the water when it comes to the midterms. Despite the GOP's strong position right now going into next year, and it is very strong, there is one threat to their ability of taking advantage of that position. And that threat is, as usual, themselves. As I said, 13 House Republicans and 19 Senate Republicans voted for Biden's hard infrastructure bill, giving Democrats a major win. That fact, however, as with most facts, has not pleased the king. Last weekend, Donald Trump lambasted all Republicans in both the Senate and the House who supported the bill and called out Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell by name, bringing our attention right back to the fact that the battle between McConnell and Trump has not gone away and the party is in for quite the primary season. At the King's bidding, GOP leadership in the House, like Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, are facing significant pressure from House Republicans to punish those 13 House Republicans who supported the infrastructure bill, specifically by stripping them of all their committee assignments. Now, what does that mean? The bulk of congressional work happens on committees. That's where members of Congress make the most impact and have the most influence to shape legislation. Committees are also essentially how members claim credit for certain legislation and bullhorn that back to voters in their districts. Your work as a member of Congress on a committee is a huge part of getting reelected. Now, being stripped of any committee assignment can be politically damaging. Being stripped of all your committee assignments means you're basically useless. And avenues for you to win political points back home are all but closed down. Now, if McCarthy folds to the pressure, it does mean less bipartisan influence in the House, as Trump Republicans would be the only Republicans on any committees. But the reality is that the infrastructure bill is likely to be the only bipartisanship Democrats are going to get from Republicans anyhow, and all of this is really a bit short-sighted. Because if you want to wield Trumpism to influence the House in any way, probably a better strategy to go after those Republicans individually and make sure they lose in their primaries in a more long-game strategy. But admittedly, long-game is not a strong suit of the Trump faction of congressional Republicans. Now, if McCarthy doesn't fold, he'll just prompt the king to disown him, flare Trump's influence in the party, and cost them seats next year anyways. So yes, the GOP is in the strongest position it could be going into next year, and the Virginia gubernatorial results and Glenn Youngkin's win should scare the Democratic Party. And yes, Glenn Youngkin laid out a solid model for how Republicans can take back both chambers and ultimately the White House. Here's the problem. Does that mean that every GOP candidate for important swing states will take that approach? Not in the slightest. 
As impressive as it is that Donald Trump was able to rein in his worst inclinations and actually listen to wisdom for once by staying away from the Virginia race, it's in light of that fact that I'm not convinced this win is entirely owed to Youngkin. Youngkin's win did not make the Republican Party's fundamental problem go away, and Trump's attack on the congressional Republicans that supported the infrastructure bill reminds us of that problem, that problem being primary elections. Trump candidates have been winning primaries typically, and they threaten to lose those seats to Democrats in the general elections of competitive races. Now, Youngkin was able to beat out the Trump candidates in that primary, but here's the thing. For that race, the Virginia GOP implemented a ranked choice voting system for their primary. Now, we've talked about this before, but ranked choice is basically when voters rank their choices on the ballot instead of choosing one or another. And if the person you gave your top vote to doesn't gain a majority or a plurality, then it's your second pick that counts as your vote. It's actually a pretty good system, and it would be pretty good for democracy overall if we did that in every state. But in doing this, the Virginia GOP was able to undermine Trump candidates and get Young nominated. Now, will the GOP in every state where there is a competitive race do that? I don't know, but I imagine that it will set off battles with the Trump faction and it will be a little bit difficult to do. The other thing is that although Youngkin's win provided a pathway for the GOP to win with suburban voters, there's always been a pathway to win with suburban voters. The Republican Party has just proven completely incapable of taking it. The GOP would be wise not to forget the other two senators who eventually had to duck into silence after facing a similar quagmire, Georgia Senators Loeffler and Purdue. Oh wait, that's right, they're not senators anymore because of this precise problem, and Donald Trump's inability to not make a race about himself enabled Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood, otherwise known as Tweedledee and Tweedledum, run amok of that race by making the central issue baseless claims of voter fraud, ultimately costing Republicans the Senate. Now, the other part of the Yunkin model is focusing on education and the economy, and this is really the GOP's best bet. The polls, especially on the economy right now, are in their favor, so it is an opportunity for Republicans and one that Yunkin took advantage of. But focusing on the economy relies on Donald Trump not making the race about himself. And is it really that hard to imagine Trump rallies next year, which suddenly become about the witch hunt of the January 6th commission or about how he actually won in 2020? Those issues do not make Republicans play well with suburbia. Republicans might be able to hold the line because the economy might just be that bad at that point in time, but I don't think they're going to be able to distance themselves from Trump enough to actually accomplish that, especially in higher profile races. In sum, it is more likely that Youngkin's win depended less on him and more on Trump. And if that's the case, then the question is not, can Republican candidates emulate Youngkin's model? The real question is, can Donald Trump defy his own nature? And if so, for how long? And under what conditions? Because I have serious doubts that when the choice becomes between complacency and hubris, that Icarus can resist the temptation of the sun in the heat of the midterms. And if Donald Trump defying his nature is what the GOP is betting on, infrastructure is the easiest of all. It's a bad bet.
not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day. But this generation has a responsibility to resolve them. <laughs>